Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. You have 30, 40 different fiefdoms. Everyone's doing whatever they want to do. How do you convince these 30 different directors or whatever that we do have common objectives? We do have some things in common. There are places where we can collaborate. There are places where we can have sort of economies of scale. If we pull all of our resources together and we can all benefit from these things. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Pete Peterson, CTO at Riviera, covers how to bring people along and get the business and other complex stakeholders on board with engineering, tech transformation, and change. We deconstruct some of Pete's experience working as the Chief Information and Technology Officer for the City of Oakland, how he navigated implementing change across 30-plus departments and stakeholders, how to find collaborators who share your vision, how quick wins are essential for gaining stakeholder buy-in. We talk about balancing competing interests, introducing change to your tech team when there's resistance, and more. Let me introduce you to Pete. Andrew Pete Peterson is the Chief Technology Officer of Riviera Partners, a leading executive search firm for engineering product and design leadership roles. With over 30 years of experience in cloud SaaS platform and solution development, he oversees Riviera's technology vision, direction, and development. Prior to Riviera Partners, Pete served as the Chief Information Technology Officer for the City of Oakland and held various leadership roles in technology and operations at Up Communications, Extiva Financial Systems, and Calidus Cloud Software. Enjoy our conversation with Pete Peterson. First off, just wanted to say welcome to the show. How are you doing today? It's uh, today's Thursday. How's your Thursday going? What's going on? Uh, it's going great. Uh, a couple of early meetings, lots of discussions, uh, you know, working our way towards good collaborations with some of our executives and, and how we need to, uh, you know, look at product, look at direction, look at short term fixes and enhancements versus tactical things versus strategic long term things that may take multiple sprints. But, you know, starting to put together a pretty good framework of, you know, how we want to continue to look at the product now that the foundational things are starting to take really good shape. You know, transitions are, can be difficult at times and we, we had our bumps, um, but now I think we're in a pretty good steady state. We have a pretty good core team. You know, I think we're making really good strides. Well, a lot of what we wanted to talk about centers along this idea of bringing people along through change or influencing new ideas or new directions and navigating different complex stakeholders or getting quote unquote, the business aligned with engineering. And you bring a really unique perspective and, and some elements of your experience are parts that we've never quite explored. One of those experiences being sort of a, a civil service sort of government lens to engineering leadership. Before you became CTO at Riviera Partners, you were the chief information officer for the city of Oakland, paired with the broad exposure you have with Riviera and all of your other experience. So like, I'm really excited to dig into the stories and the examples you have along this idea of like complex stakeholders, navigating transition, influencing ideas. But I wanted to start with the city of Oakland experience. How did that happen? How did you become the chief information officer there? 
why, what motivated that? Like, tell us more about that experience. Well, I, I tell the story all the time because I just I find it funny and somewhat unique. So, you know, periodically I get together with the fellas and uh, we sit on the back balcony and, you know, it's our time to drink whiskey and smoke cigars. And, you know, we're chopping it up. I don't know, five or six of us. One of the guys uh, was formerly the uh, city manager for the city of Oakland, and he's now head of the San Francisco Foundation, a pretty large organization. But through all of this, we're all laughing and joking. All of a sudden, he's like, what's your legacy going to be? Uh, And I thought about it, right? I mean, those of us that work in the Valley, our legacy is kind of that we made some money, right? We we went to some startups. We uh, participated in liquidity events. Then we went to the next startup. And I, I really didn't have a good answer besides that. And so uh, I started to look for ways in which I could give back to my community. It was a really tragic event that occurred here in Oakland. It was a warehouse fire. Oh, I, I remember when this happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a live work area. Didn't pass any inspections, all that kind of thing. It was a big fire, and I believe it was around 37 people died. And as I was listening to it on the news, they were saying, well, the reason this occurred is because the communication or the systems that are used by the fire department and the planning and building department that handles inspections were not communicating to one another. And I'm like, wow, I can do that. Right. I mean, just, you know, not knowing anything about it in in any kind of detail. I was like, I I can help out there. So uh, I knew people that knew the mayor. Uh, We reached out and uh, told her, hey, I want to come and, you know, work for you. And there was an opening. And voila, I'm a new CIO for the city of Oakland. So it was an opportunity for me to give back. It was an opportunity for me to utilize the skills and things that I've used in the Valley for 30 some odd years to build enterprise products, to build, you know, new startup products, to now use them for my community, for the well-being of my community. So that's how I got there. I appreciate seeing like the seeing the problem mentality and real and and declaring like I can do something about this. And not only can I do something about this, I'm I'm willing to invest the time and the the action to do that. Is that something that you've always embodied? This like I see a problem and I'm gonna I'm gonna go and I'll fix the problem. Like is that a mentality that you bring to other areas? Um, I, I guess I, I, I have to say, yes, it's funny. Uh, I've been having these conversations for the last couple of weeks about personalities, right? And there was one that uh, I participated in a personality test or assessment that I participated in back in 2007 called the predictive index. And I went back and read it. And basically, that's what it says. It's like, you know, give this guy a target or a heel to conquer, get out of the way and, and uh, let him go do it. And then I looked at the Myers-Briggs thing, ENTJ. So I look at that and, you know, it's, it's kind of consistent. And, and when I think about uh, my life, it's, it's pretty much how I go about it. I, I grew up on a farm and, and everything was completing a task. Right. If I wanted to go play or wanted to go do basketball, if I wanted to go play football or whatever, or just roam the neighborhood looking for uh, friends or whatever, you had to get your work done first. And uh, even I tell my son, you know, do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. So solving problems, how can I get this done? How can we overcome this? It's just been something I've been doing all my life. It's wild to think about the experiences when we're younger that that shape us in our professional lives later on. Well, I must say I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I hated living on the farm. I didn't understand it. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? Uh, But later came to appreciate it, right? You know, it's from that experience that uh, formed my work ethic and how I approach problems. So, yeah. 
So you described observing this moment with the the lack of communication between planning and the fire department and all these other other stakeholders and identifying this problem and wanting to jump in and, and solve it. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about like some of the challenges that you experienced uh, as the CIO of the city of Oakland and how that role was different from like a typical, you know, quote unquote tech role. Well, first, let me say I, I've been anti-government all my life <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, some of my reasons for that uh, were born out when I joined the city. It's just a pretty bureaucratic organization. Uh, and it's not driven by profit. It's not driven by the things that we are driven by in terms of the Silicon Valley or, or, or enterprises, right? It's just politicians, some well-educated, some not so well-educated in understanding certain things. And so they're, they're just, they might be driven by their constituents or, or smaller things. It leads to a loss of inefficiency. And so uh, when you're driven by, we got to get this product out the door, we're running out of money, or our profit margins are what they, they should be, everyone is rallying around those points. Uh, in a city, we had 40 some odd departments, we have 40 directors that are responsible for various different things, and we didn't really work together. Right. Uh, planning and building folks are doing what they do. The public works folks are doing what they do. The health and human services folks are doing what they do. And so we, we didn't really have that unifying objective, right, where we all work together. We all come together. We have the strategic plan to do certain things. And so it becomes very bureaucratic. It becomes very inefficient. It's tough. It, it was it was a really tough environment to get things done. Um, logic doesn't always win out. Right? Common sense doesn't always win out. And so you have to overcome those things. And that was probably the hardest part about the job. What I'm really grateful for is the opportunity to kind of dig into some of those challenges because in a lot of ways, all those challenges exist, but in different forms in some of the typical environments that folks listening in are leading under. And so like in a lot of ways, we get to kind of take a peek at like an extreme example of some of these elements. So I'm just excited to dive into some of those. But I wanted to go to the stakeholder part because you were describing this world in which there are, you know, 30 different departments, at least that many stakeholders, all competing for resources or optimizing for their own mission and without that lack of like a, a central rallying point or like a shared definition of success. Tell us more about that stakeholder environment and what that was like from a technology perspective. Well, yeah, it, it, it was tough, right? Because you don't have that rallying point that you mentioned, that common goal, common objective. You have 30, 40 different fiefdoms. Everyone's doing whatever they want to do to a degree. How do you convince these 30 different directors or whatever that we do have common objectives? We do have some things in common. There are places where we can collaborate. There are places where we can have sort of economies of scale if we pull all of our resources together and we can all benefit from these things. So un unlike positions that I've had in the Valley where tech is king, tech was a, at the city, it felt like a, a necessary evil. It wasn't something that was used as a competitive advantage. It was like, even when I joined, you know, they were talking about just keeping the lights on, making sure the email stayed up. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I can do that, but that's not what I do. <laughs> and I will do that, but I'm here to, to make change. I'm here to initiate or be the impetus for some kind of transformation in what we're doing here. I'm here to solve some problems. The biggest thing is finding collaborators, people that are willing to work with you, people that are willing to take a chance and do something different that hasn't normally been done at the city, people that can see your vision. When going into an organization like that, I mean, I, sort of the first thing I do is I, I, I just sit back and listen, right? I, I try not to rock the boat. I try to just understand and learn. Uh, and then I, I canvas the area. 
find out what's going on in other departments. What what struggles are they having? What are they trying to achieve on their own? A lot of things you get is you, you get these little pseudo IT departments that spin up in every department thinking, oh, we can roll our own. We don't need the overall department. So I go through and I find these things and then you see a problem and you're like, okay, I need a quick win and you need a win. So, you know, tell me about your problem, what you're working on. In this case, it was the housing department. Uh, the director of housing uh, wanted to be able to uh, use iPads to do case management. Someone comes in, they need a housing assistance. They go sit over to the side. They, they're given an iPad. They fill out their information. Um, that goes into the overall system. And then from there, we have case management. It's assigned to a case manager who takes them all through the process. So I look at that and I'm like, ah, I can do that. Uh, and this will be a great project uh, for me to bring on this new technology. I think one of the key parts of it is to find a business champion or, or business you know, collaborator or uh, whatever we want to call it, and then have a quick win, right? Not, not a win that takes a year, not a win that takes two years, but a quick win. So you know, we were able to go in and collaborate. So they funded the project, that director funded the project. Um, my team built the project in, in, I don't know, four to six months, maybe a little less. And then we could showcase that project throughout the city. And we make the other uh, directors envious. Uh, look what we were able to do. Look how quickly we were able to implement it. Look how effective it's being for the housing department. And we can do these things for your department as well. Some of the initiatives that you may have had or wanted to do for some period of time, we think that we can help you get those things done. So having that quick win, having someone that was able to, to fund the project with us, uh, and then being able to showcase uh, the final product helps smooth the transition, right? Helps to uh, allow us to continue to build, create momentum uh, and bringing in this new technology and this new framework and this new thought process as to how we get things done. How much easier is that second conversation after having like that proof of concept, that quick win and those, those results showcased? Super easy. <laughs> I mean, it's super easy. I mean, because you, you've been able to demonstrate that uh, you can do what you say you can do. And, you know, not to sound arrogant or anything, but we we're not, you know, we weren't the typical CIO. I had never been a CIO before, right? Every position I've had is uh, engineering leadership, VP of engineering, CTO, programmer throughout my career. But it was always about building product. It was never about supporting an organization from the IT perspective. You know, I, I had enough information or knowledge about that because when you're get into a startup, you pretty much do everything. I've installed routers. <laughs> you, know, you do whatever to get that startup where it needs to be. So, you know, I was knowledgeable enough. I was uh, knew enough about it to do it. Uh, but the real transformation is really in the applications, right? The applications that we expose to our citizens, the applications that allow our citizens to talk to the city and to be exposed to the uh, services and things that are provided by the city. That's the real power yeah, most of the things from an IT perspective are going to the cloud anyway, right? You know, we don't need a data center. We had one, and one of my objectives was to shut it down. All that infrastructure stuff, Office 365, all that stuff's in the cloud. Let them handle that. They're the experts. Let's talk about business logic. Let's talk about things that are specific to helping the homeless. Let's talk about things that are specific to helping people that have housing needs in, in a very expensive area. Let's talk about how do we make sure that the police department or the fire department and the building inspection department can communicate effectively so that we don't have disasters like that. I mean, there are so many opportunities to make a difference. 
so many opportunities to make a difference. Super proud of the accomplishments there. Probably, even though it was one of the most difficult environments, it was probably one of the most fulfilling because it wasn't about just making money, right? It was about helping people uh, and giving back. Fast forwarding now to some of the work that you're doing at Riviera, like how has that stakeholder experience impacted how you approach navigating some of the relationships or stakeholders or the different um, sort of the different initiatives you're working on at Riviera? How has that prepared you or strengthened you to to navigate things differently in a different context? It's very it's, it's very different, uh, but it, it, there are some similarities, right? Uh, Riviera is an executive search firm. Uh, we have an internal product that we use to, to differentiate us, to, to make our recruiters more efficient. Um, and they had a legacy product, right? So they had a legacy product and it was, it was effective, but it was very complex in terms of its implementation. You sit back and understand what's going on uh, and then you make an assessment about how you move forward. And so the difficulty there was that the product was built using Elastic and Mongo and Postgres. Uh, using uh, Ruby, Kubernetes, Docker's, all this stuff. And I'm coming in and I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, that's a pretty complex architecture. And then I looked at what they were proposing to replace it. They were proposing a pretty complex architecture, (laughs) Uh, an architecture that is probably utilized, you know, at Twitter or probably utilized at Facebook. It's an architecture that has been proven to allow scalability to the millions, right? Well, we don't have that problem. And so it was, it was an architecture that, in my opinion, was too complex for the problem that we had. Mm-hmm. Right? So now I have to convince my engineers what they're trying to do and what they're proposing to do is not the right thing. And then on the business side, the executive side, I didn't really know, because I'm the new person, how tied the executives were to this, this technology or this framework that was already in place. So similar to the city, I, I went to the executives. I think we're uh, we're on an offsite company offsite. We were playing golf and gave me a chance to meet with them one on one. And I'm like, "How tied are you to this technology? Because I'm about to change it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's going to be disruptive, and we're going to have some problems in terms of the team because some people will come along and some won't. Uh, so how you know how tied are you to this thing? Because this is going to be a major change. And you know, I talked to the couple of founders. I talked to the CEO. Everybody was like, do your thing. You know, and I I followed that up with the presentation as well, which was kind of outlining the benefits of using this new technology that I was about to go to. So it's really, I mean, if you think about it, it's it's the same thing. You know, you're convincing your business leaders, this is what you need to do. Uh, Work with me and we'll make this happen. And then on the other side, I have to convince my engineers, this is the right direction. This is the way we should be going. I know you guys love this technology. I know you guys love Angular. I know you guys love Ruby. I know you guys love all this stuff, but we're not doing it that way. And I hope you give me a chance and, you know, work with me to do it, you know, in another way. So the first year was pretty bumpy, uh, extremely bumpy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to point out a couple of things that stood out to me from what you were sharing about that story. I think like number one, this seeking to understand like the key stakeholders, like first off checking in with them to see, you know, what have they thought about getting a sense of the lay of the land and the motivations first. And then as like you have this proposal or solution in mind, like being transparent with the impact of that. I I thought those are really cool examples. Um, And then the other was like then, so like then you've, you've had these informal conversations that to like get a sense of what the world is like. And if there's sort of this openness to the solution, and then there's like, boom, the formal presentation outlining the benefits. But it sounds like at that point, the conversation had already been started. So people are more willing to be open to a major solution. I just thought those are some interesting uh, little nuances to the approach there. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I think it's, per, it's important. One of the reasons I got into management, executive management, uh, I, I was at IBM when I started. You sort of had to do the same thing, even though we're building system level code, working on DB2, uh, blah, blah. You still had to go give presentations and you still had to go get a second, third line manager to support whatever ideas that you have. I kind of got tired of it because they like run you around, right? You go from manager to manager and, and no one would make a decision. And so I decided I'm going to go to startups where I can be more influential. But uh, I got into management because I want to be able to not only architect and have decision-making power, but I also want to code. And if I'm, you know, the VP of engineering or the CTO, nobody can tell me that I can't. (laughs) 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 So uh, in all that's to say is I kind of consider myself to be a player coach. And so I kind of understand uh, where the engineers are coming from. I kind of understand some of their reservations and things like that. And so I try to cut them off by making them part of the process, right? Explaining to them why I'm not for this particular architecture, why it doesn't make sense, explaining to them why I want to do what I want to do, how it's going to fit in, what's the real issue or what's what's the real solution that we're trying to do? What's the real problem that we have to worry about? Uh, what Where should our focus be? Uh, not on technology so much, more is we're about data, right? At Revere, we're about data, about people. We're trying to make decisions about who are the best candidates to serve uh, that we want to put in front of our clients. So it's all about data enrichment. It's not about being able to uh, service 100,000 concurrent users. That's not our problem. So that should not be our focus. Our focus should be on the data side of things. And that was different. Given that new focus, uh, the technology should be appropriate for that. So trying to bring the engineers along and, and showing them, you know, why this was the right choice is also part of, you know, that whole transformation process and uh, getting through it smoothly. Well, just the act of serving as the constant reminder of the mission or the problem, I think is such a powerful practice, like before everything talking about here is what we're after. Like, this is the real problem that we're trying to solve. So let's orient around that. I think it's really powerful. I want to go back to something you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, you, you sort of shared this like this moment of, I'm here, I know IT, but it's not my expertise. I'm here to lead transformation. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Going back to this environment of like 30 plus stakeholders or 30 plus departments, multiple stakeholders, right now a lot of folks are being asked to do more with less. On top of that, then there's resource constraints and then there's some priority challenges or competing interests. And oh my gosh, the craziest example about this is probably city government strapped for resources, having to be highly efficient. Like, So how did you handle different or competing interests in assessing some of these needs or priorities? Uh, I guess one of the other things about me is uh, I can be pretty forceful at times. You know, I'm pretty stubborn, I guess you'll call it that, whatever. So we, we did have that problem, right? We had everyone doing, you know, their own IT or thinking they're doing their own IT or hiring companies to do development. So we have one department who decides, oh, we want a mobile app and we want this mobile app to do 
I can't remember uh, completely, but I think it was in public works. And you can go to this mobile app and you can report blight. uh, You can report abandoned cars or you can report whatever. And so, but you had to have a user ID and password for that app. And then you go to another department and they've already built their own little app. And now you got to have another user ID and password. And so we built a framework, we call it Oak Apps. And that framework does all the fundamental things, right? It it handles user ID and password. You have a single SSO, so to speak, or a single user ID and password that allows you to connect to all the city applications if they plug in. Uh, And so convincing these departments that have already rolled their own uh, and created their own app that their app needs to join this platform, that, that was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of folks were complaining because it was their baby, this new app. And I'm like, no, uh, you got to plug in. Everybody has to plug in. Uh, citizens should only have one user ID and password to connect to the city. And so, you know, those are battles, little battles that you have to fight. Sometimes you exert your authority. Well, we're doing it this way. I'm sorry that you're going to be upset about it, but this is how it happens. So you, you get some of that. And then other cases, you know, you try to reason, <laughs> you try to reason with folks that if you plug into here, then you don't have to do this. And when you build your next app, your next application, it'll cost half the amount amount of money. It'll, it'll, it'll take, you know, half the amount of time. Uh, there's a lot of efficiency here if you plug into our platform and what we're trying to do. And, and so we were we were pretty successful with being able to do that. You know, if you go out now and look at Oak Apps, there's probably 20 plus applications that plug into it, uh, ranging from multiple departments, whether it's planning and building, we got housing, we got health and human services, a, a homeless resource application, we got camera registry, which is the police. You know, we got family night out, which is a thing here where you register that you're going to be having a block party and all that kind of stuff. We got liquor license applications, a whole gambit of disparate applications that plug into this framework. And you as a citizen, all you have to do is log in and you now have access even to pay a parking ticket or an invoice at the city. You can go in, there's an invoice application, uh, and it all plugs into this framework. And so uh, every time it was funny, I was just showing it to a guy yesterday and, you know, I look at it and again, it's something that we're very proud of and we're able to accomplish um, despite some of the obstacles. I, to me, I'm just like, why, this is so wild because this is like the ultimate example of, of silos. You know, you have 30 plus products being built under a unified brand or, or like service, so to speak. And like, so I'm imagining like an analogy of like, you know, what if Meta had a different log on, login for Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, all of these disparate services, like just and how painful that would be. And so then like expanding or extrapolating that pain to a, a citizen of the city trying to tap into the services that they pay for via their taxes, like, and the just the frustration that is inherent in that relationship, I think is so wild. So like, just hearing these examples is great. So authority, reason, like talking about cost, time, efficiency, are there other things that worked in terms of bringing people on board to that unified platform? Or was it kind of like a different motivation every time? No, I, I think and we, we talked a little bit after the first one and then the second one and then the third one and folks started to see where you're going and how quickly other departments are, you know, we're rolling out apps for other departments. You know, the resistance is way down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, you're able to just start to fly through here and, and, and build those 20, 30 applications, right? Even a very large application we built on top of it. Right. So the city of Oakland has been under a consent decree because of some police behavior 20 some odd years ago. And one of the components of that uh, decree was that they had to have an analytic system that kept track of all police behavior and was predictive as to which officers had a propensity to do something bad. Right. Sounds kind of familiar. 
they had pulled all these uh, vendors together, won't name any of them, spent $8 million, and the system didn't work. Mm. Right? Uh, they tried to show it to me when I started, and we're sitting here, and the screen is, you know, just spinning, spinning, spinning. Uh, I even tried to fix it, and I couldn't. <laughs> just like, look, I'm sorry, I can't fix it. They had been allocated $10 million bucks, so they had $2 million left. I'm like, well, give us the $2 million and we'll make it happen. And uh, we were able to do that. You, you'll have naysayers and people like that. But now that we had some momentum, now that we had some uh, experience with this new platform, now that we knew what we were doing, and we also had some partners in the ecosystem around this new platform, we were able to pull together the right partners. We were able to define where we needed to go. And we were able to quickly, pretty relatively quickly build this app on a $2 million budget with ongoing operating expenses, a third of what it would have been for the old system. And then, you know, again, harking back towards the, the benefit of the community, we're able to use this system to look at an officer 360 degrees, right? I know exactly all the classes, you know, that this person took. I know, you know, whether they passed or failed. I know every accommodation. I know every reprimand that this person went through. I know every team they were on. I can compare this person with their peers. I can even say whether this person should be in a particular position, right? So not to bring up something that's uh, a stain, but if you look at the George Floyd situation, that field officer who was in charge had a history of bad behavior. So if we know this, why is this person a field training officer training new cadets to mimic or, or exhibit that bad behavior? And so it's, him. it's another system that we were able to bring on board after we established ourselves and our credibility to use this technology to do, you know, pretty good things for the city. Turned out well all across the board. The city was able to at least check one box off on their consent decree. Uh, we now had that visibility for officers. We now also provide that visibility for the community uh, where they can go in and see what we call uses of force. There's various levels from, you know, zero to X where you actually did bodily harm or whatever. Um, but they can see that and, and, and it provides a layer of transparency to the community, which leads to hopefully a higher level of trust between citizens and, you know, the police force. So, yeah, I mean, establishing the credibility, establishing early wins, successful wins, uh, then allows you to transition to the larger, more important projects uh, or, so, or more substantial projects uh, and making those happen as well. If this story of, you know, $8 million of the budget had been used up, you only have $2 million left, sort of reminds me of like the Leonard Bernstein quote, like, if you want to get something done, like have a plan and not quite enough time. Like in this case, like have a plan, have it not work, and then like have not quite enough budget to redo. Well, that's city, that's city government right there. <laughs> yeah. in the I wanted I wanted to dive deeper into into resistance to change because I think you, there's some incredible examples here of overcoming because everybody encounters resistance to change like but the thing is change is the only constant and you know you'd shared this example of like convincing engineers to adopt the right technology if you know they were focused on one thing but maybe it wasn't the right use case like how do you think about bringing your team along when there's resistance to change yeah, I think the one, the first thing I try to do is, is uh, establish some level of credibility. I'm, I'm not just a uh, in-the-office exec sitting in the high castle or whatever. I, I actually have been an engineer, and I try to share that with my team. I'm always there. You know, if it's the system's down in the middle of the night, I'm not going to be just sitting around waiting on a status. I'm going to be on the call and help troubleshoot. So first, I try to establish credibility that I've done this. Uh, I've seen a lot of different things. You know, I'm not just another pretty face. You know, I, I know some of these things. And then uh, I try to appeal to their reason. One of the things we talk about is low code. A lot of people talk about it. And, and it, that's 
the platform or technology that, that I've been using. And a lot of the resistance is that the engineers feels like uh, it's sort of dumbing them down, right? Uh, I want to write the code. I want to write the code. I want to write the code. But if we think about what we're taught as computer scientists is, is to abstract things, right? Look at abstracts, to look to find patterns. And so the whole evolution of software or is, is this, or the whole evolution of programming languages is this. When I started 30-something odd years ago, I did assembly language programming, IBM 360, right? And then we had a high-level language called PLAS, which found the common constructs in those programs and says, oh, I see this, you know, this if statement. It's not even an if statement because you had a condition and then you jump to a label <laughs> to get to the else part of it. But it's a common thing that happened all the time. And so in the higher level language, they created something called an if, right? So now I no longer have to code it that way. And even in assembly language, you can go down to the microcode. And we were at some points, again, we were doing system level stuff. If we felt like a assembly language instruction was wrong, we would go and look at it, you know, uh, compare and swap or whatever. We knew the timings of everything. I mean, again, it was a different age, but the evolution is that you continue to look for patterns. So when we went to, you know, the higher level language, then they, they gave us the ability to package these things up called functions or procedures. So you don't keep rewriting it over again. And that's all low code is, right? They, they, they fed a zillion programs and they looked at them and they're like, wow, look at all these patterns. You know what? People use this SQL statement construct a lot. Join, 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 where clause, order by. Let's package that up and make it easy for people to use it so they don't have to keep rewriting. Hey, you know what? In a UI, people use dropdowns all the time. People use checkboxes all the time. People use X, Y, and Z. You know what? Let's package those things up and make them easy to use. You don't need to rewrite a dropdown every time. It's just no point in it. Uh, what you might need to do is customize your dropdown, and as long as they give you the ability to do that. And so this is a natural evolution. Even when we start to talk about regenerative AI, the reason you keep feeding it all these things is so it can find the patterns. And next thing you know, it's just generating the pattern, right, without you. That's what we want computers to do. We want computers to find all the repetitive stuff, do it for us. Now that frees us up to do the more intelligent things or to do the next innovation or do, to come up with the next invention because we're no longer writing if statements. We're no longer writing for loops. We're no longer doing that. And we're focused on the business logic, which is the real value of any application. All that other stuff, nobody cares. What they care about is it performing the function that I need to move my business forward. And that's where you really want to put the majority of your time, not writing drop downs and, and sorts and all this other kind of stuff that now is off the shelf. And, and so I kind of try to appeal to that sense of it. I'm like, well, what are you doing when you grab a gym, a Ruby gym out of GitHub? Somebody's packaged this up. They gave you some parameters so that you no longer have to write it. It's just a different Lego. And, and you know, some of these low-code platforms, their aperture is a little wider. Not only are they looking at how do I package up these programming constructs, but how do I also package up these infrastructure constructs? How many times do we need to, to stand up a load balancer? How many times do, I mean, replication? It's been done. We know how to do it. Package it. Put it on a shelf, you know, give us different sizes and let us pick the right one and, and move on and spend no time on it. If they understand that, they understand that these things are going to happen. The evolution is going to continue, right? Assembly language, high-level languages, 4GL languages, low-code, whatever they want to call it, regenerative AI generating code. 
These things are going to happen. You got to get on the other side of it. You got to be the business expert. You have to be the person coming up with the next innovation because nobody cares that you can code a drop down. You're not a superstar if you can code a drop down. And so I was convincing my team, spend your time over here. Put these Legos together. Spend your time over here because that's where the real value comes. Uh, if you can be a force multiplier for your company, you get noticed. You're making a difference. So I, I try to feel to that part of it. And, and hopefully they see that this is just a natural evolution of things. And, and they're probably already doing it. Like everybody pulls stuff down from GitHub that somebody else wrote and they plug it in. It's a package. It's a common pattern. So there's no, there's yeah. nothing new here. It's just done in a more efficient way. A powerful reminder, show people where the value is. I wanted to call out two specific leadership practices that we had talked about beforehand that I think are really powerful. So I think you'd mentioned earlier about involving people in creating the solution. And then the other was putting your team in front when you deliver a win. I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about those two practices and like what those look like, because I think those are absolutely powerful when it comes to overcoming resistance, influencing and driving transformation. Like, so tell us more about like involving people in creating the solution and then putting your team in front when they deliver a win. Yeah, I, I think as a leader, and I'm probably talking about these in reverse order, but I think as a leader, uh, we became leaders because we we already have gotten our accolades. It's funny, I, I, I was advocating for my team in front of, we are executive offsite, and we had this conversation, and I'm just like, look, I'm not advocating for me. I have a room full of trophies or plaques and uh, you know newspaper articles. I don't need it. You know, but my team needs to be recognized for the work that they do. They need to be recognized for the amount of time they put into this, right? I'm advocating for them, right? They did this. Yeah, I might I may have come up with the high-level architecture and, you know, I, I divvy up the work and, you know, I'm here for questions or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's these folks that are making it happen. And, yeah, we, we hear all the adages about a great leader surrounds himself with great people, right? And so our job is to have the vision, to clear the path, you know, deal with the not the nonsense that's outside of our group and then challenge our people, right? To make sure that we're giving them work that's meaningful, fulfilling, and allows them to use their creativity, to use their intelligence. And I can't accomplish anything without them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm not looking to be the CEO or anything else. Uh, so being that sort of player coach that I talked about before, it's really about team, right? It's always about the team. Uh, we can't win the game unless the guard brings the ball down the court, passes it to the forward, the shooting guard makes his points, the, the center gets the rebounds. It's a collective effort. Putting your team out front, making sure you acknowledge the team and not so much about yourself is super important. Funny story, in recent, I was attending a service, church service with a friend. We are standing outside. And a guy walks up to me and he's like, are you Pete? I'm like, yes. <laughs> this guy worked for me 24 years ago. I mean, I feel bad that I didn't remember, but I, I, I hope and I want to attribute it to the way in which I treated my employees or I try to treat the people and the engineers and so forth that work for me. And, you know, now we're connected via LinkedIn and all that good stuff. But uh, it was a really good feeling that, I mean, even after all these years, when he recognized me and said he had a good experience. So uh, it's always about the team. I think it's that's such a powerful mentality and philosophy around leadership because, you know, maybe three years ago, we were having a conversation with somebody and they were talking about hiring an executive leadership candidate. And they said one of their top criteria for hiring was, do they talk about things as their team accomplishing it or do they talk about it as me 
or myself accomplishing something as like the the criteria for success like do they attribute their success to other people or to themselves and the fallacy they were you know attributing it to is that like it's not your accomplishments your teams like your team drives it so like that credit is so important so i think like that mindset and mentality i think is so powerful I really wanted to ask this question because you have helped coach presentations to different stakeholders with folks on your team. And in an environment where, you know, I'm just thinking about like the city government context of like multiple stakeholders, multiple competing departments, like it's really complex to prepare for those different types of presentations. Um, But that's just one of those elements in which you've, you've helped support people in presenting to different stakeholders. So I was just wondering if you had any advice for engineering leaders that are presenting and that maybe that are non-obvious tips or the most frequent mistake you would encourage people to avoid in the coaching that you've provided people uh, over the years there. Yeah, I I think it's the same as when you're looking at a a problem and understanding where the value lies, right? And we were just talking about this where I said, hey, our value is not in high concurrency and all that. Our value is is in our data. But when you're about to give a presentation, it's the same thing, right? Who are you presenting to and what's important to them? What appeals to their sense of importance? Uh, And so when I presented, for for example, this this technology I talked about, I presented, you know, a reduced operating budget. Right. We can go from fifty thousand dollars to support a month to support this product to probably like five to ten. Right. I presume I presented a reduced size of my uh, engineering team. So when I started, I had over 30 folks. Uh, my budget was about six million bucks a year. Now I have 10 folks and my budget is less than three million. And we've developed a product and we're putting releases out or sprints every two weeks. Find out what's important to your audience. Right. Tailor your presentation to that. Uh, Having concrete examples, uh, factual um, statistics or whatever it might be, numbers, and then do your thing. And, And those are the things that make your presentation effective. Talking about a lot of things that nobody cares about, it's just noise and they they zoom out. (laughs) They don't zoom in, (laughs) they zoom out. Uh, So those are the things, that's what I would say. And it's probably obvious, but find out what's important to your stakeholders and then uh, appeal to that in your presentation. How am I going to make that better? How am I going to get you where you need to be? How am I going to increase your marketability? How am I going to increase your profitability? How am I going to increase time to market, right? How am I going to decrease operating expenses? These are all the things that click for executives, you know, that aren't, you know, not tech executives. And so those are the things that I try to put in a presentation. So really know your audience, know their pain points, what's important for them, not what's important for you, and then show how you're going to make a difference in those areas. The number one question to ask yourself before preparing for a presentation, what's important to them? I love it. Pete, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Uh, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. First question, what are you reading or listening to right now? Uh, there's, there's this book I look at, I can't even think of the name of it right now, uh, that I've been reading about the, the story of finance. Or, and, and basically, it's not really about finance, but it's about how finance affects our lives in so many different ways. How that affects our lives, how they make decisions, how companies make decisions about whether or not they're going to put in this safety feature or not. You know, how we make decisions in our everyday lives and trade-offs based on a whole lot of financial principles that we may have never even thought about. Uh, what I'm listening to, I, I love music. I grew up in a church. I grew up in the choir. So I love gospel music, but I also love all different types of genres. And one of the things I love about Spotify is that I can, you know, feed it uh, an artist that I love and I'll, they'll find all these different artists I've never heard of that have a similar sound and all that kind of stuff. So it helps expand my horizon of, of music that I listen to. 
you know, friend just introduced to me to uh, Leon Bridges. And, yeah, you know, I love Leon If you said something to me about country, I'd be like, uh, forget about it. But I, I, I like this guy. And, uh, and I also found he's collaborating with some of my, my you know, my mainstay artists. So um, just a variety of music, but mostly I, I listen to things, uh, I guess, um, jazz, hip hop, collaborations, things that are smooth and easy, some R&B, stuff like that. Yeah, mm, man, I I love Leon Bridges. My my wife and I's favorite artist. We first final record we've owned Leon Bridges, and then I believe it was the after our wedding, like the walking down the aisle leaving song was Leon Bridges <laughs> Beyond. So yeah, huge huge fan. People listening definitely definitely listen to some Leon Bridges. Uh, it'll put you in a good headspace. Next question, Pete. What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Computers. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so I also tell this story. I was planning to go to the Air Force Academy because I, I get this need for speed, right? But growing up in a very strict household, a son of a minister on the farm, all that kind of stuff, at the last minute, I decided I can't do it. I can't have sophomores and juniors and seniors telling me what to do. So I decided not to go. I ended up going to Purdue, but I was still going to, to take aeronautical engineering. I applied late. They put me in a computer science program, which was new back in the day. And I loved it. All the things that I've done career-wise has been a result of that. Right. Falling in love with, you know, the average, ever changing challenges. Right. Every two weeks, the professor gave you a new program. And that's what I find even to this day. Right. I've been doing this for 30 some odd years since 1984. Believe it or not, I've been doing this and I, I've yet to get bored. And, you know, I, I don't have any desire to stop doing it. I love solving the problem. I love waking up at night or thinking about it at night, waking it up and writing down. Oh, this is how I'm going to fix this issue. Um, I love architecting uh, for scalability, for maintainability, for enhanceability. I love doing those things. And I don't know, I, I like to feel like I have a, a natural propensity to do these things because, I mean, they just come to me in my head. So computers has made a, a huge difference in my life. Never thought I would be doing what I'm doing. Never thought I would be an executive. But because of that experience, because that technology was introduced to me and, and I sort of fell in love with it, I'm here. And because of that, I'm able to, you know, affect my family's lives. I'm able to affect, you know, folks in my community's lives. It's just been great. Next question, Pete. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I don't really have a good answer for that. I mean, everyone's already talking about uh, GPT and I'm fascinated by it. I am completely fascinated by it. Uh, we're finding ways in which we can incorporate it. We have incorporated it into our product. We're finding other ways in which we can incorporate it into our product. The trend that I see, and I guess it's kind of inevitable, you know, what are we going to do? about these loss of jobs, right? Because it's going to happen, right? It's in the movies. If it's in the movies, it's going to happen. <laughs> if it's in science fiction, it's going to happen. And um, this technology, and I've read the, the New York Times stuff and all the, the technology folks, it, it is going to take jobs, right? And that's what computers do. Anything that can be automated, we do it, right? Uh, because we're driven by profitability. And the easiest way to profitability is reduce your labor costs. So I'm really intrigued by that, and I talk about it all the time, and I talk to folks about it, how it's going to work, and uh, a lot of lay people don't really get it, but it's here, and it's happening at a very, very rapid pace. I think I saw something where Expedia is, is using it to create your itinerary. The nice thing about the technology is the more times it does it, the better it gets. The more examples, the more variety of information you feed it, the better it gets. And it's scary. 
but it's exciting at the same time. Being a technologist, how can I use this? How can I use this in different ways to achieve, you know, whatever solution or problem that I'm trying to solve, but also how can I use it to help other people at the same time? Pete, one final question for you to, to wrap us up. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I mean, don't 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 let other people's limitations uh, limit uh, your ability to achieve. Don't be controlled. Don't be uh, discouraged. Only you can determine what you can't do. Only you uh, can decide what's impossible. Don't be discouraged by the naysayers. Don't be discouraged by those that don't believe. Follow your dreams, right? Follow your ideas to wherever they may lead. And I think that's kind of powerful and it's kind of how I've tried to live my life. Absolutely. Pete, we've, we've talked about the, the crazy multiple stakeholder competing priorities and interests environments that you've been a part of. We've talked about some of the ways to, to help bring people along to transformation and overcome the resistance to change. Um, just thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and the lessons that have helped you along the way. We appreciate it. Hey, Patrick, uh, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I really, really uh, enjoy speaking with you and, you know, just sitting down and, uh, you know, we should do it more often. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, well, man, maybe I can, maybe I can get an invite to the, the whiskey and cigars on the back to back deck part. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> hey, you, you're ever in the neighborhood, let me know. I have some really good Japanese whiskeys that I think you would enjoy. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.